Saul, who will become the great apostle Paul, at the stoning of Stephen. And if you just go back to the beginning of uh, chapter 8, where uh, in 7, Stephen has been stoned, and uh, (laughs) that's a, a tricky way of saying it, I guess but he's been martyred as by the method of that time of throwing stones on him. And uh, at the end of chapter uh, 7, it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. He's the one who's being stoned. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then in chapter 8, the first verse, it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul approved of the stoning of Stephen. Saul is a very religious, well-educated, zealous leader in Judaism. And uh, he's obsessed with destroying the church He is literally persecuting the followers of Jesus. And uh, I'm going to read something from uh, chapter 26 where he gives his testimony to uh, King Agrippa. And, uh, And here is part of what he says to them. He says, On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. And in the wording of the ESV as well as uh, RSV, enraging fury against them. Instead, you know, in our Bible, it's obsessed with persecuting them, and they translate, in raging fury, I persecuted, or furiously enraged at them. Passion, rage, hatred, murderous obsession against the followers of Jesus. And that was Saul. That's who he was. Well, here in chapter 9, he has obtained authorization from the high priests in Jerusalem, and you you almost get the the sense that he actually would initiate that, you know, go to the high priest to see if he could get that authorization, to go to Damascus and arrest any disciples of Jesus and bring them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. That's what he was about. Interesting here that we see that the Christians were called Uh, those who belong to the way. Verse 2, if he found any there in Damascus, any who belonged to the way. That was the term or the expression used by early Christians to describe themselves. They were on the way of life. They were on the way of salvation. They were followers of the one who said, I am the way. Well, it's about noon, according to chapter 22, where he gives his testimony to, um, to, uh, in, to the crowd in Jerusalem. It was high noon, he says, or about noon. 
And uh, Saul and his entourage are close to Damascus. They're almost there. And then suddenly, without any warning, a light from heaven, unmatched in brilliance, flashes, blazes all around him. And Saul falls to the ground. And then he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What an encounter. It's an encounter that will turn him right around, 180 degrees. And it's not the kind of U-turn that we sometimes make when we just sort of think, oh, maybe this would be a better way. I mean, this was, I would say this was a forced, a compelled U-turn. He who was taking captives becomes a captive. He who was a persecutor of Christ will become a proclaimer of Christ. Saul the antagonist will become Paul the apostle. Now, very obviously here, very clear here, that we, he has a revelation, an encounter, a rev- revelation, unveiling of Jesus. And then what follows is a reorientation. And so we're going to talk about it under those two headings. Uh, The revelation of Jesus to him. Revelation of Christ to Saul. And then we'll talk about it, the reorientation of Saul that came about because of the revelation. But it's very much of one of the appearances of our Lord following his resurrection in uh, verse 7 as Ananias went to the house and entered it, he, he says, Jesus who appeared to you. Jesus who appeared to you. We might sort of wonder, well, how in the world did he even see Jesus with all that light? And yet that's what it says. Jesus who appeared to you. Maybe he didn't see anything but the light, but it was still Jesus who was appearing to him. And then also in uh, chapter 1 Corinthians 15, where... Uh, Paul has a very carefully detailed chapter on the resurrection of Christ. And uh, early in the chapter, he gives a list of the various appearances of the risen Lord. And uh, saying that, uh, well, beginning at verse 5, it says, after such and such happened, then he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, uh, then to the twelve, Okay, that would be the 12 apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And then he includes himself in the list. He says, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He wasn't one of the original. He wasn't there in the days of Jesus' flesh to meet him or talk to him or listen. I, I don't know if he ever saw him or not. But he wasn't one of the apostles there. And so that would be why he says, as one abnormally born. But it's still listed as an appearance. And so here's one of the resurrection appearances, really, of the glorified Lord. Revelation. But what a compelling encounter. How could he not? How could he not be changed, turned around, 
brighter than the sun blazing is what it says in chapter 26 brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions high noon and yet the light is brighter than the sun and uh, when you think about that i'm sure that even at that our lord restrained himself why wouldn't the light be brighter than the sun since he is the creator of the sun but the revelation isn't only about Jesus in all his glory. But there is the dimension of the human Jesus, God in flesh. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And very specific. Jesus, not God, however you happen to understand him, but I am Jesus. None of this very current and common foolishness. It doesn't matter what you believe in. It doesn't matter who you believe in as long as you have faith. Faith is all that really matters. No, I am Jesus. He's the one that has to be the object of faith. And he is the one to whom Paul would give his full allegiance. No one else, the only name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Um, but Jesus is the ultimate revelation when it comes to what we need to know, especially about how to live before the Lord. What we need to know about God is especially revealed to us in the person of Jesus. Ultimate revelation. Remember what he said to Philip, or Philip began the conversation. He says, show us the Father. He begs of his Lord, of Jesus, and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. John tells us also, in chap that was in chapter 14, in, in chapter 5, that uh, if you reject the Son, you're rejecting the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And everyone who listens to the Father, that's in chapter 6, anyone who listens to the Father and learns from him, Jesus says, comes to me. Hmm. Well, Paul came eventually. It sounds like maybe he wasn't really serving the Father. Certainly he was doing so in a twisted way. In 8.19, to those who asked, where is your father? He replied, you do not know me or my father. Jesus replied, if you knew me, you would know my father also. But what a stunning revelation to Saul I mean he was convinced that the followers of Jesus were heretics deserving to be imprisoned at least and apparently even more so he persecuted them with radical zeal chapter 26 verse 9 I too was convinced I was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he was coming from. And now this, <laughs> I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. What a revelation. So compelling, so captivating. No wiggle room whatsoever for dispute. But how can he say, I am the one, how, how can Jesus say, I am the one who you're persecuting? I mean, he was 
persecuting Jesus' followers, but now Jesus says, I'm the one you were persecuting. How so? Well, Jesus is so identified with his followers that what is done to them is in fact done to him. To persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Remember what he said in Matthew 25 where he gives the parable of the sheep and the goats and describing who the sheep really are and he says, uh, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers of mine you did for me. Hmm. And verse 45, and also whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these you did not do for me. He is so one with his own people that you can't do a kind deed to one of his followers without it being done for him. And you can't be mean to one of his followers without, in effect, being mean to Jesus Christ. So often there's meanness among believers. Christians being mean to one another, quarreling, arguing in hateful ways over different interpretations of Scripture or from different perspectives. And I would say that discussions over disagreements over finer points are, are, can be very helpful. You know, we, we become better aware of what we really believe, but it, but it has to be done with that sense that these are brothers of mine. And so if I'm mean, if I'm hostile, if I have a hateful attitude and what I think is so important and trying to convince them of, then wait a minute, I'm doing it to the Lord. And in that type of meanness, and sometimes you see people writing up that very thing, there seems to be so much meanness among Christians. I say, have they forgotten? Have they overlooked? That whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The risen, exalted, glorified Jesus revealed himself to Saul. It was a revelation that brought about the reorientation of Saul. And that's our second point. This obsessed, angry enemy of the church completely turned around. It was, like I said before, a no-choice kind of a U-turn. And so let's see if we can trace a little bit of the process that was going on in his life. And the first thing I notice is that the Lord brought Saul to the end of himself. To the end of himself. This man, very religious, trained thoroughly under Gamaliel, the prominent Jewish rabbi. This man was brilliant, energetic, carrying out his religious commitment, all stopped removed. And now suddenly he's knocked down, becomes blind, helpless, uh, dependent on others to lead him by the hand. Imagine, led by the hand because he's blind into Damascus. And then it says he's weak, for he goes three days without food. And you say, why? Well, didn't anybody offer to feed him? I don't think that was the problem at all, because they didn't desert him. No, but the text tells us uh, in, in this vision that uh, God gave, or the Lord gave to Ananias, verse 11, he is praying. 
he is praying. This encounter so knocked the props from under him that the only place he could go was to his knees. Think of it. Not only blind and helpless and hungry, but the very center of his life, that which had become his first priority, that which had become the meaning of his life, it would seem, that which he was totally sold out to and pursued with total commitment, that is to stamp out this movement about Jesus. And now this revelation from the risen Lord himself in a blaze of glory, now he discovers in one fell swoop that what he had given himself to so unreservedly was wrong. And in fact, what he was trying to stamp out was in fact the truth. He had been blind to the truth, and now he's blinded physically. And as Adriel said, I think there's, uh, literally he was blinded, but I think there's a symbolic meaning here. Maybe that was part of the Lord's intention, because he had been so blind spiritually. He had missed it, and now he's also blind physically. And so blind, helpless, fasting and praying, stripped and naked before God, he is brought to the end of himself. And he has three days to process all of this. Can you imagine <laughs> what would have gone through his mind? I mean, three days on his knees, praying, thinking, meditating, reflecting, remembering that those on the way were on the truth way. That in fact he had been opposing God. Do you suppose he gave some thought to Stephen? He had approved and no doubt heard what Stephen said. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing before he closed his eyes in death. Do you suppose Saul was thinking about that as well? Three days to really ponder it all on his knees. God often uses that condition in reorientating people where our desperate end-of-the-rope experience is at the same time the end-of-ourselves experience. And that can be exactly what God uses to bring us to where we need to be. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've experienced that. I think probably for most of all, it's a smaller thing that happens, and yeah, we get reoriented, and maybe many of us need it over and over again. Some of that reorientation that comes when we realize how helpless we really are. Broken relationships, perhaps, or the death of a loved one, failed career, breakdown of our health, deep disappointment, shattered dreams, or maybe overwhelming regret. I, I sometimes wonder about these people who have done something that has caused so so much pain and uh, how do they live with themselves and what's next I'm thinking currently with the person who was very drunk chose to drive a couple hundred miles a couple hundred kilometers an hour and killed three people how do you live with yourself but it, you know you come to the end of yourself and I just want to say here that God can use any such end-of-ourself experience to reorientate 
Lord, to readjust our lives. To free us from whatever has become too important. Free us from a type of idolatry where we are too putting too much into something. And it's been suggested that uh, you know idols can't simply be expelled, but they need to be re- replaced. And that is what we see here in Paul. His radical zeal, his purpose of life was shown to be so wrong, and it's taken away from him. He comes to the end of himself, but he's reoriented to something much better. And so he will burn his bridges. He will commit himself as zealously as before, but to the risen Lord. Now we mustn't think that every time we are in difficulty, it is because we're on the wrong track, as was Saul. And uh, that God is bringing about it because we're on the wrong track. No, 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 doesn't mean that. But he uses these negative experiences. And sometimes that's exactly what it is. But he uses our downs in order to build something much better into our life. And perhaps especially we need that when we think we have it all together. Well, Paul's Saul's experience, so fully engaged with dedication and fervor and legalistic obedience, but he was emptied of it all and reorientated to follow and serve Jesus Christ. And so that's the second thing I want to mention. In the process of this whole movement in his life, he was first of all brought to the end of himself, and now he's redirected, and he surrenders to a new loyalty. What shall I do, Lord? It says he, he, he tells the people there in, uh, in Jerusalem when he speaks to the crowd, He sort of fills in what isn't mentioned here in in chapter 9. In chapter 9, he says, Who are you, Lord? And then the Lord says to him, Get up and go into uh, Caesarea, and he'll be told what you're to do. But as he gives his testimony in chapter 22, uh, he inserted these five words, What shall I do, Lord? Only five words. They are words that make all the difference, words that come from the will, the decision-making part of our inner life. In this case, it was a surrendered will. And for him, it wasn't a cause of turning away from secularism or sinful appetites or the many things we may be called upon to surrender, but it was redirecting. He thought he was serving the Lord, but he was wrong. And so, some now that wrong thinking, and yet that commitment to serve the Lord is being turned around. He will discover that to really serve Yahweh is to follow Jesus Christ. And from now on, that would continue to be his question. What shall I do, Lord? That would always be the bottom for him. And so he comes to the end of himself. He is redirected to ask and to follow God's will in his life. And then there's a third one. Saul is commissioned to a life of practical daily obedience. Following Jesus one step at a time. Note what the Lord said to Ananias 
who was afraid to meet Saul, but the Lord calls to him. In chapter uh, 15, he says to Ananias, don't be afraid. Uh, He is a chosen instrument. In other words, I've got something pretty special for him. Uh, He's going to be, and he doesn't tell him all of that, but he's going to be a primary apostle to the Gentiles. And he'll be the human author of most of the New Testament letters. But that was all to come. (laughs) That's pretty glamorous. That's pretty specific. But that would come later. But the first steps, pretty basic. Get up. (laughs) Get on your feet. Go into the city. And then he waits in in the house. And Ananias comes, lays hands on him. And then Saul gets up to be baptized. And so it is with all of us. It's one thing to be brought to the end of ourselves and then to give ourselves in glad surrender. That can all happen in short moments of time. But then there's that daily practical obedience. One step at a time. Nothing glamorous but practical obedience. One day at a time. Some of you may have read uh, that book by Eugene Peterson, and it's uh, teaching around the Psalms of Ascent as the believers in the Psalms are moving to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem, and the expressions of praise to the Lord as they go. But the title of his book, (laughs) it's worth the price of the book alone, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And that would be Paul. That would be Saul. These first basic steps, and then from on day by day. And last night as I was going over my notes, I thought of that song we used to sing, and I emailed it over to Adriel and David if they wanted to use it. A step by step. Step by step. And that's what it would be for Paul. And that's what it is for us. Oh Lord, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. O God, you are my God, and I will ever praise you. And then this part, I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways. And step by step, you'll lead me, and I will follow you all of my days. And that's what it would be for Saul, who became Paul. And that's what is expected of each of us, including those first steps so very basic because like Saul we are all expected to confess Christ we're expected to be part of the Christian group we're expected to be baptized as was Saul and we're expected to learn and to be directed by God's word and that for the rest of our lives I will follow you the rest of my life and to pray as Saul did to serve Jesus using our gifts and talents practical, daily obedience for the rest of our life. And as we take those simple steps, common expectations for God's people, then he can direct us into that which is unique for us. Think of someone who has, to all visual or apparent intents and purposes, somebody who has ruined their life, and yet God can take that and use it. A couple of things I want to leave as we finish. And the first is grace. God intervening, 
compelling Saul to turn around. That was grace. Grace compelling him and grace forgiving him. <clears throat> Even though he was in favor of Jesus' disciples being killed, God still forgave him and used him. 1 Corinthians 15:9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And then these words, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah. And that's for us too. 1 Timothy 1.15, again, Paul writing, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And so we need that grace. You know, God doesn't use perfect people. He uses faithful people. And because of grace, it doesn't matter what scars you have brought on yourself in the past. It doesn't matter what those... It matters a lot, but in terms of being useful to the Lord, it doesn't matter because there's grace. Whatever it is you've done, whatever scars... It don't matter when it comes to His grace. It's there. And He can take all that brokenness and those regrets and the bad consequences and He can use them in His kingdom. Hmm. And then the second I want to leave with you are these words, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? Those words of surrender. Pastor Tim Keller has pointed out wisely he says that whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. God, by His grace, brought Saul to the end of himself so he could be reoriented and controlled and directed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever controls us is our Lord. And for him, it became the exalted, risen Lord who would control him. And so may that be our experience. Dependent on his grace and accepting grace, believing in His grace, and then with a sense of confidence, serve Him as He controls us. Surrendered will and He controls us. Many years ago, a roommate of mine at Bible College I had this poem, and I thought, what a good poem, I'd like to have it. And he graciously, in longhand, wrote it out for me. And this is the poem, Empty and Filled. One by one, He took them from me, all the things I valued most until I was empty-handed. Every glittering toy was lost. And, <clears throat> and I walked earth's lonely highways. <clears throat> in rags and poverty, I heard his voice entreating, lift your empty hands to me. <clears throat> empty hands I lifted he heavenward. And he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches till my hands could hold no more. And at last I comprehended with my mind so slow and dull 
that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. That's Saul, and that needs to be you and I. Empty hands so that he can reorientate and uh, direct us.